Hello everyone and welcome to the main stage here at MagicCon Las Vegas. It is time for our next panel, the Magic Story Podcast Live. I can't wait to get into it. Who's ready to get stuck into this next panel here? Well, without further ado, my friends, I'd like you to welcome to the stage your hosts. We have Hala Snyder and Natalie Kreider for the Magic Story Podcast Live. Hi, y'all. Long time no see. <laughs> Welcome to the first ever live podcast recording of the Magic Story Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Harless. If you've never heard of us before and you stumbled into our panel for a place to sit, welcome. We are the Magic Story Podcast, and we recap the fiction story of Magic the Gathering into easy-to-consume episodes you can listen to as you clean your house, walk your pets, run errands, do whatever you do. And I am so excited today because we are going to record a podcast episode together today. And we've been making this podcast for about five seasons now, and we're actually going to return to the studio to record the sixth as soon as we get back from Vegas. Um, and it's been amazing to be able to talk with you all about the magic fiction of, the, of Magic the Gathering. And I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone for being here with us along the way. Absolutely. We are currently releasing episodes from Wilds of Eldraine, and we, I hope like you, wanted to know more about the story behind the story. So today, we are bringing you three experts on all things Wilds of Eldraine. Are you ready to record a podcast, Harless? Let's do it, Natalie. Join us as we head into, into the, the multiverse. Hey, y'all, and thanks for coming to our panel. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the incredible, the fantastical, the whimsical fiction story of Wilds of Eldraine. This set is based on the fairy tales we all know and love, which means that story itself is imbued in everything about Wilds of Eldraine, from the fiction to the card mechanics to the art. This set is top to bottom, pure whimsical fun with a moral attached. Today's episode is a special one. I mean, not only are we live in Vegas with an amazing audience, but Harless and I are not going to be talking about the fiction story just amongst ourselves. No, 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 no. We're doing something different. We are going to be joined by three guests who brought the ideas of Eldraine into reality. So let's welcome our first guest. Everyone, please put your hands together for the story lead for Wilds of Eldraine, Roy Graham. Hi, Roy. Hi, Roy. So everyone in the audience here today and podcast listeners at home, as you can probably guess, we're talking about the story of Wilds of Eldraine from top to bottom. We'll cover everything from why we went to Wilds of Eldraine after the Phyrexian invasion, to why our main character, a simple sheep farmer, didn't even know the invasion was happening, to how this is all represented on cards. But before we get into Eldraine, let's talk about where we've been leading up to this. Well, where we've been took four entire podcast seasons for Natalie and me to sum up, but in case you're just joining us or you want a refresher, 
essentially, the entire multiverse just got out of a war with a group of baddies called the Phyrexians. And the Phyrexians depict a lot of body horror and gore with a goal of total multiverse domination. So, Roy, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, coming on as story lead, uh, the Phyrexian arc was uh, sort of my plane to land. Uh, and I, you know, what, what like a, an incredible opportunity and, and what a... Uh, what a story, man. It's, it was so full of like this alien weirdness and, and uh, like horror and, and obviously really high stakes, right? Because the Phyrexians uh, were, they're, they're a serious threat. Uh, we had characters uh, die. We had characters uh, be completed, turned into those, you know, uh, cyborg abominations. Worlds invaded, totally changed. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a very serious business. Yeah, absolutely. The Phyrexians were a type of horror that, I mean, still haunt me to this day. <laughs> I mean, it devastated the entire multiverse. And I think it's arguably fair to say that it will never be the same again. So, like, and, it's, and that's where we've been and what we have been talking about on the podcast up until now. But we have a pretty intense tone shift from March of the Machine to Wilds of Eldraine, essentially going from a world made of metal and sinew to a place where fairy tale dreams are made. Um, so, Roy, how did, how did we manage such a drastic tone shift like that? Sure. Well, so first thing I want to point out is there's plenty of horror on Eldraine. It just comes in the form of giant like cakes and gummy worms and candies and things. Yes. Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, certainly there, there was, uh, managing that tone shift was, uh, it required a lot of work, uh, right? Uh, but, but also it was something I think everyone uh, on the story team was really excited about because we had been so mired in this uh, pretty dark, pretty high stakes uh, story for so long that getting a chance to play around with, like, the fairy tale uh, themes and tropes uh, and... Uh, a world that sort of has like a lot of whimsy baked into its uh, kind of like core physics almost um, meant that we could we could really uh, play in like new spaces as writers. So, would you say Wilds of Eldraine is a bit of a palate cleanser after the Phyrexian invasion? Yeah, I think so. Um, that was one of the goals, certainly. Yeah, so that was one of the goals. Could you tell us were there were there any others? Yes. Uh, so there were a couple. Uh, First, like you said, is uh, having uh, this story be a bit of a palate cleanser, having it uh, be f feel very different, uh, feel uh, fresh, uh, new, uh, fun, <laughs> uh, and also connected to what follows. Right? That was like a big, uh, a big thing that we we wanted as uh, the story team. I'm personally not a fan of like filler episodes or uh, like. As, as fun as like a, a, a beach day episode uh, can be, in uh, that wasn't really what we were going for here, right? We we wanted to uh, set up characters, themes, uh, things that we're going to return to uh, as Magic Story continues this year and and you know in the years that follow. Uh, but we also, uh, while doing that, we we wanted to make sure uh, to feel like it it you know uh, came from from everything that had happened so far, right? That, that we accurately were reflecting the, the consequences of an event as, as serious and widespread as the Phyrexian invasion. You know, that was, it was really important uh, to make sure those consequences were very visible in, in Eldraine, despite the fun and despite the whimsy. Yeah, I mean, a desire for consequences seems challenging in a set with candy monsters and a bunicorn. <laughs> so how did you navigate that? 
I mean, it was, uh, like I said, it required uh, uh, a lot of balancing. It was a bit of a tightrope act. Um, and I think uh, Kira's going to talk a lot about this when we, we bring up our, our next guest. But uh, the two perspectives that sort of dominated the story helped uh, do that quite a bit, right? We have uh, as sort of the uh, intertwining plot lines of the Wilds of Eldraine story, uh, the twins, uh, Rowan and Will Kenrith, who are dealing with, uh, actually in, in Kira's words, uh, having uh, caught the biggest stray of the entire uh, multiversal invasion when uh, King Kenrith and, and Queen Linden were killed. Uh, they are both uh, dealing with a very intimate uh, you know, sense of loss, uh, very personal consequences. Uh, so it's not just you know, uh, uh, that part of their plan has been uh, ruined that, you know, uh, armies were devastated, that, uh, you know, great warriors were killed. They lost their mom and dad, you know? Uh, and that's, that's grim and, and it's hard and they're both dealing with that trauma in very different ways um, of varying degrees of, like, health, <laughs> healthiness. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, don't, we, <laughs> yeah. we all, we've all grieved before. Don't turn to witches to, to, to do your grieving. Great advice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but then on the other hand, you know, you have uh, Kellen uh, is, as the other major perspective uh, in the Wilds of Eldraine story, who is uh, this deeply idealistic, uh, deeply uh, sort of al altruistic, uh, golden-hearted, kind of dumb, <laughs> uh, you know, kid from, uh, like you said, nowhere USA sheep town uh, out in the middle of Eldraine. And uh, because Kellen wasn't really affected by uh, the invasion, he, he could be this, you know, bright, goofy, whimsical uh, fairy tale protagonist that we also knew that we needed. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things I love about this story is that it feels so complete. You know, there's a clear beginning, middle, and end. And though I want to know more by the end of the Wilds of Eldraine story, I don't feel like I'm waiting for the next one in order to feel like complete and satisfied with this one. Um, and as you had said, dangers and darkness are obviously prevalent in Eldraine this time around. And we see that with Rowan, as you had explained. But for me, that really clicked when we saw Ashiok appear Ooh. in the story as well. Like, the fact that Ashiok is here yeah. manipulating the wicked slumber, that just raised the stakes it, like, immensely for me. And that, especially because we don't know what Ashiok is up to by the yes. end of the story as well, it was like that darkness where nothing, yeah. nothing is as it seems this time around. Absolutely. I mean, a Ashiok to me is like the shark from Jaws, right? Like, kind of the less you see them, the, the better, because they're uh, letting, letting our imagination do, you know, uh, slowly tighten, tighten the noose there is, is scarier, it's, it's more fun, it's, and it's, uh, I think it preserves a, a healthy sense of, like, the dark mystery that uh, is part of why I find that character so compelling. Uh, certainly, and, and why I think a lot of people do also. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, could I go back actually to something that you that you mentioned that like the uh, the story felt really complete, right? Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, something that I uh, that was another goal actually uh, of the story that I wanted to touch on was just that like um, every magic story we want to feel uh, obviously connected to what came before and, and what's coming, but satisfying in its own right also, right? Uh, you should be able to. Uh, feel like you, if you read just episodes 
one to five and uh, missed March of the Machine or, or maybe are missing Case of Ixalan, you still got a story that you were happy with and, and satisfied with. I think you accomplished that. Thanks. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Roy. Let's give a hand for Roy Graham. We have another guest to introduce you to. You know her, you love her work, the writer of all five stories of Wilds of Eldraine. Let's give a huge round of applause to Kay Arsenault Rivera. Hi, Kira. So nice to see you. So fans of our podcast will know what a treat it is to be able to talk to you today. You've written so many iconic fiction stories for magic that we've covered in our previous seasons, but today, of course, is all about Wilds of Eldraine. And speaking of Wilds of Eldraine, the characters, I think, were my favorite parts about this story, and there was one in particular. So I want to know everything there is to know about our new young hero. So Kellen is great. He's just a sweet little guy. And he's kind of a protagonist that we don't really see very much in magic lore, which is something that makes him really exciting to me. He's not just this sweet kid. He's also very idealistic, as Roy was saying, to the point where his idea of trying to track down a witch is literally walking up to people at the market and going, hey, has anybody seen a witch here? <laughs> and we just, we don't get that very often from magic protagonists. We see a lot of schemes. We see a lot of uh, plans, and we see a lot of very big, showy things. But one of the cool things about Kellen is how down-to-earth he is. And that was something that I really wanted to delve into and make sure that in Kellen, everybody could see both a bit of themselves, but also maybe a bit of their little cousin or a bit of somebody in their family who is very sweet but doesn't know very much. And you kind of just want to wrap them in a warm blanket a little bit <laughs> and wish them the best on their journey. <laughs> Which I find really refreshing because like you said, Kellen to me is really representative of all of us, mm -hmm. right? We all start off wide-eyed and naive and have to learn about the world. And really part of that for Kellen is because he wasn't particularly impacted by the events of the Phyrexian invasion. So can you speak to that? Yeah, so he was raised in his little farming village for the most part, Orangeshire, which was not at all impacted by the Phyrexian invasion. In fact, they hadn't heard about it at all. All of this is news to him, which makes it very good to have him as a point of view character, especially for a lot of people who are coming into Magic now for the first time and who know that this big event just wrapped up and maybe want to know a little bit more about it, but they want to take it step by step. And we can really do that alongside Kellen by having him react to things like these giant Phyrexian bodies or finding out that there are other planes of existence, which is now news that's spreading throughout the multiverse. Yeah, I absolutely love Kellen because of that. Like, I'm rooting for him the entire time. And obviously, there has been so much craft that's been put into this brand new character into Magic. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that craft? Like, what did it take in order for the audience to become invested in this new character, Kellen? So Kellen is special because we're going to be seeing a lot of him in the sets to come. And that was definitely something that we were keeping in mind as we were working on the character. We want him to have, as Roy said, a complete arc within Wilds of Eldraine, where you get a very good introduction to him, to his struggles, to what drives him to adventure, to 
see a little bit of the growth that we're going to see furthered in Ixalan and in other sets as well. And part of the craft of that is really honing in on who he is and making sure that every scene he's in has an opportunity to further that growth. Whether it's him asking about witches at the market and having his friend Ruby be like, hey, um, people don't do this here. Uh, do, do you need help? Or like an adult? I'm not an adult, but I can help you out here. I can be a stand-in adult until we find one. And then as they continue on their quest, not, not an adult in sight. Not an adult in sight. <laughs> they get to Hilda eventually, and she does give them very good advice, but in a lot of ways, the story of Wilds of Eldraine is about them kind of taking those first steps to becoming the adults that mind themselves. Absolutely. Well, Kellen really believes that if someone's in trouble, you've got to do everything you can to help them. And he also, though, he's not a cardboard cutout of a hero, right? He doesn't um, feel... Boring. And in fact, one of the most interesting things about Kellen is his heritage. Can you speak to that? Sure. So Kellen is a character who, like me, is of mixed race. Um, personally, my parents are both Puerto Rican, but my mother is black and my father is white. Uh, and when you're growing up like that, it's definitely a very particular experience. You don't necessarily fit into one box or the other box, and everyone is kind of trying to make you go into the other one. You're never quite enough of one for the other. And it's, you know, there were a lot of situations when I was younger where I would show up for lunchtime and I wouldn't know which table to sit at because I was not quite, you know, white enough for the white kids. I was not quite black enough for the black kids. And <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> but that was something that I really wanted to explore with Kellen. And it's not the first time that I've done this in Magic. Arlen Cord in Midnight Hunt had kind of a similar experience, although hers was between wolves and humanity. Kellen is much more down to earth and I think much more relatable in that context because all of us have felt like outsiders before. And that's something that ties in with how we make him so sympathetic over the course of the narrative. And it's something that really drives him forward. It seems like a small difference at first, like what difference does it really make if his father's a fae? But when you're in a town as homogenous as Orangeshire is, all of these little tiny cracks that come between you and the people around you easily become ravines that are just so difficult to cross that people just can't fathom having something in common with you because you're different from them in a very obvious way. Yeah, and I know that you were actually selected to write this story because of your experience of being biracial. Like, did any of your own like, personal life experiences make it into the story? Yeah, so uh, some Kira lore for you all. Uh, my family is from a very small fishing village in one corner of Puerto Rico where nothing happens. <laughs> And the biggest thing that you ever see is a fish festival. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I went back home for a summer, and the biggest news in town at the time uh, was that somebody had caught a pregnant hammerhead shark, and they were parading that through the town. And that is really the vibe that I wanted to bring to Orangeshire, where there's all of these people who are kind of related to each other, have known each other for generations, but sometimes the differences are really highlighted there. Um, and also, as I mentioned with Kellen as well, that feeling of not quite knowing where you belong and having a lot of questions that nobody can really answer for you. 
when you're in that situation, you always want somebody to tell you you're this or you're that. But it's something that you have to define for yourself, and it's not that simple. And it was important to have Kellen seek out those answers for himself, even though he has a very loving and supportive family, because he still needs those answers, and those aren't answers that his family can give him. Yeah. There were a lot of multifaceted characters in this story other than Kellen. So can you tell us some of your other favorites? Uh, pretty much all of them. This set is packed <laughs> full of weird little guys and weird little gals that I love dearly. Uh, so Ruby was a big favorite of mine. Um, one of the things that I love about her, too, is that she's such a good counterpoint and foil to Kellen. She's somebody who's aware of the genre that she's in, who knows that she's already in a little bit of trouble and needs to get out of it, but doesn't quite know how. And she's a little bit jaded by everything that's happened. She's both seen the wicked slumber, she's seen the invasion, her brother has now disappeared. She's kind of a little lost. And where Kellen is this idealized, I have to save everybody no matter the cost kind of figure, Ruby is somebody who is, I think, a lot more approachable to most of us, especially as adults. A lot of us are in this position of knowing that something is wrong, but not really being able to cross that boundary to do what we know is right. And that whole sequence with Ruby saving Kellen, just because it's the right thing to do, is about that. So I loved exploring that with Ruby. Um, I also really enjoyed writing Ariad, but I think to me, possibly the most fun part of this was writing Rowan, um, especially her heel turn. When I was a yes. kid, my favorite comic book arc of any kind was the Dark Phoenix saga. I would have put money on that. Yeah, I, I'm very predictable. <laughs> so being able to Dark Phoenix a little bit with Rowan was just incredible to me. I loved doing that. Yeah, I also love Ruby as a character. Just like, I love that in her card art, she's like wielding a crossbow. Yep. And she definitely knows how to take care of herself mm -hmm. in the wilds. And she's also our, like, our spin, our take on Little Red Riding Hood, um, like the fairy tale, which is just like one example of many of the interwoven stories that we have in Wilds of Eldraine. And that actually leads us to our next section on the panel. So Kira, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the story of Wilds of Eldraine and give us a little bit of of a peek behind the curtain as to the writing that went into the story. It's such an honor to be sitting here with you today. Everyone, let's give Kira a hand. <laughs> All right. Well, the written story isn't the whole, well, story of Wilds of Eldraine. We talked about the overarching goals of the set with Roy. We dove into some of our favorite characters with Kira. And now we're going to talk about how story itself played into the card set. So here to tell us all about that is lead vision designer for Wilds of Eldraine, Chris Mooney. Put your hands together for Chris, please. Hey, Chris, it's nice to see you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the thing I am dying to know about is, how did we take story as a concept into gameplay with this set, which is inherently all about story in its design from top to bottom? Right, so, I mean, coming to Eldraine, we decided that fairy tales were really going to be the focus this time around, which meant that right from the get-go in designing the set, stories and fairy tales were right at the front of our mind. Um, Really how that ended up manifesting in the set 
is each of the 10 two-color pairs in the set is based around a particular fairy tale. And that really allowed us to dive into a lot of these stories and create a lot of memorable moments, characters, objects from these stories that you would recognize, but also give a little bit of a structure to the set. Um, we were really inspired by uh, War of the Spark, which uh, if anyone remembers in War of the Spark, a couple of the two-color archetypes in War of the Spark kind of had a, th a through line. The most memorable one probably being in red-white. It was like the story of a Boros soldier who you saw her fighting throughout the day and she kind of rose through the ranks from, from like a, you know, level one to being a commander at the end. Um, battlefield promotion and all. Um, and we really liked that idea and we thought, could we take that and blow it out to a full set to really encompass everything in the set trying to tell these different stories throughout? So with this type of the design, you kind of get stories within stories, right? So with all that love for fairy tales, how on earth did you pick which ones you wanted to focus on? Well, I mean, right from the beginning, we sort of sat down and said, you know, we've got these 10 two-color archetypes. We had a list of fairy tales that we thought we could do. And we just started to line it up. Roy and I spent a couple of meetings together trying to figure out, you know, what would go where. Um, some of them were very obvious. Some of them took a long time or a little bit of tweaking to get right. Um, but a lot of what we were inspired by was, so the first thing that we came up with for the set really was the idea of the roles mechanic. We really liked that idea of a mechanic where you could apply, you know, you could turn someone into a princess and you could some, turn someone into a witch and you could turn, um, you know, have your different characters playing the different roles in the story. So a lot of what that led us to is, okay, we have these roles that we want to hit. Um, what are the stories that use those roles that it makes the most sense and how can we incorporate them into each of the archetypes? So you had talked about these 10 fairy tales, and you had made them into mechanics in vision design. Could you tell us a little bit about that step? Yeah, so just for anyone who maybe is less aware, typically nowadays when we are designing sets for limited, we will create a different archetype for each of the two color pairs in the set. Because typically in draft, you want to play two colors. And it's a little bit more fun when we're actually setting up a strategy for you to play, something that is like more inspiring, something that's aspirational, where you can feel like you're really putting these cards together and setting up something cool. So that's something that we do in most modern sets. Um, and for us, it was really about trying to, uh, we came up with this idea of what we called the story archetype, which was eventually the name that we gave to this idea of Hey, so if you're drafting, let's say, red-green, well, your uh, gold uncommon, the one that tells you what your deck is about, that's going to be the main character of that story. In the case of red-green, that would be Ruby. And then we try to pepper in, okay, all of the other cards that are supporting that theme are going to be part of that overall story. So different cards in, the, in this set, red-green, is about having creatures with power four, which we thought was, you know, Little Red Riding Hood going through the woods and finding all sorts of large, nasty beasts that are coming after her. So a couple of the other cards that care about power four in the set are those nasty beasts that she came across in the woods, um, or spells that represent things that happened to her during that story. So that idea of, of tying in all the story moments, the characters and the objects, to the, the actual gameplay of the archetype, and then trying to do that for all ten, is really how we injected fairy tales into kind of the base gameplay of the set. Yeah, so uh, for anyone who's joining us who maybe doesn't know, why are, why are mechanical themes in the draft format just so important? 
Well, it's a lot about making sure that, um, you know, when you're drafting the set. So draft is one of our most popular formats, and that's for a couple of different reasons. But one of them is that draft is our most resonant format. It is the format in Magic where you are playing with everything from the same setting, from the same plane, that's all trying to create the same unified experience. And what that means is that it really allows us to be uh, more uh, intentional with how we are representing things and the experience that we are giving you. We like to make these two-color archetypes because, in general, playing two colors is, is the best way to go. It gives you the best mix of having different options but consistency. Um, and we like it, making sure each one has a theme so that when you're drafting, you're not just taking whatever cards you see, but you're actually like, oh, this goes with this, goes with this, and now I can make a really fun deck. Plus, um, the nice thing about having these two-color archetypes is that it also means that for a lot of people, like me, when I started playing Magic, I went to a couple of drafts, and then I would go home and just build decks out of whatever I drafted and just play that with my friends. And so having these two-color archetypes in the set also allows people to go home and make their own casual decks out of those themes. And the story really ties into that as well, because now it's, no long, it's not just, I drafted black and white, so... I'll play a black-white deck. It's like, oh, I drafted black and white, and I can see that, like, you know, here's uh, Snow White, and here's the Evil Queen, and here's the Poison Apple, and here's all the things that go together. And now you can sort of have a more thematic casual deck. Yeah. So if I, if I could, could, could I just jump in for oh, one course, second yeah. there? Because yeah. I, I think also, like, uh, there, I, I've gotten a lot of questions in the past about, like, oh, so does design just come to you with, like, here are the, here are the uh, ten color pair mechanics, staple whatever creative flavor right. onto them you want. Or uh, does it go the other way around where we go, here are the 10 creative archetypes. Interpret them mechanically. And the, the answer is neither of those are really true. There's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of uh, like collaboration between design and, and story, right? Absolutely. And I, I think that I would say that over time, we've only gotten better and better at doing that collaboration and sort of coming to each other earlier in the process and throughout the process and saying, hey, you know, the story took a turn here. Do you think you could incorporate that into the mechanics? Or, hey, we thought we were going to go in this direction mechanically, but it's not really working out. Could we tweak the, the world building in order to match what, what we're doing now? Yeah. Um, and I think that Wilds of Eldraine, uh, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I worked on it, but I think Wilds of Eldraine <laughs> is really one of our most successful uh, attempts at actually bringing um, the mechanics and the story together in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we gain really a lot from adding that story element to it. So what other pieces of story? You mentioned, like, it helps you draft, it helps you kind of understand your deck, but what other, like, flavor bits does it give for us? Well, uh, one other thing I'll mention is that, like, from the get-go, when we were talking about the theme of fairy tales for Wilds of Eldraine, um, when it comes to magic, especially if you're playing limited, uh, the kinds of stories that the gameplay of magic tends to tell are stories about things mixing together, things that you maybe wouldn't expect coming together because you don't know exactly what cards you're going to get to put together in your deck. Um, and so right from the get-go, when we were making Wilds of Eldraine, we were thinking about this as, let's make a set that mixes fairy tales together, where the story that you're experiencing is that, okay, well, I'm kind of telling the story of Beauty and the Beast, but then, oh, uh, you know, Pinocchio shows up, <laughs> or the Frog Prince shows up, um, or, you know, like a, a saga for, of, of a totally different story shows up, and these things sort of mixing together. I mean, that's where the idea of roles came from right from the get-go, is because we like the idea of there being a nasty little goblin, but then it receiving the royal role, so now it's like a goblin princess, and how that would change up the way that you're telling the story. And so one of the things we really liked about the story archetypes was that 
it meant that if you were drafting a certain strategy, you could see the different cards like, be pulled together. And even if you were paying attention to the story, you might actually be able to draft a little bit better because you can be like, hmm, that character is from that story. I think it might actually go in my deck. But it also means that when other characters from other stories do show up in your draft deck, you get that fun sense of, this person has their entire own story and their own you know, life that they're living. But in this case, they're a guest star now in the story that I'm telling today. Yeah. We've done things like that in the past similarly. Like we, um, we had cards in Tempest that tell the story kind of in order as you look through the card set. And then more recently, we had story spotlight cards, which are a great indicator to help players understand which cards in the set actually represent moments from the stories and their art, their flavor text. We also have scene cards, such as the Battle of Pelennor Fields in Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-earth, which utilizes multiple cards to create one big scene and tell one really big story, right? And, and these instances all take story to that next level. And these are all examples of how we've incorporated story into the physical cards of Magic the Gathering. So Chris, what are some other ways we incorporated stories in this set in particular? Um. I mean, a lot of it was the, so there's the story archetypes and there's the roles. I think one of the things that we really did is try to say, let's give every story in the set its own magic twist. Um, that's something that, you know, when people come to the magic set, uh, they don't necessarily want to see just exactly so, like, you know, the, the same story from the folklore they know. They want to see a little bit of a twist on it, something that's new, something that's fresh, and brings the own magic flair. And, um, I think there's a couple of exa examples queued up that I can talk about. So, for each, so some of the stories, for example, the one that we have here, this is Johan, uh, and this is you know part of our Sorcerer's Apprentice. Blue Red was Sorcerer's Apprentice, and Johan's story. It's pretty close to the original story. <laughs> He's an apprentice of a sorcery. He gets a little bit in over his head. Um, the magic twist here was that instead of animating uh, a bunch of brooms as he does in the original story, in this case, he's creating a bunch of elementals. Um, and that what that did primarily was allow us to get a lot more visual um, diversity. So instead of just seeing, I don't know, like 20 brooms, instead there's, you know, a, a, a hearth that's come to life and a cauldron that's come to life and, uh, you know, the rotisserie elemental. A lot of fun, <laughs> interesting elemental designs um, that really allow us to uh, explore a lot of different things visually. And that's actually something that I think a lot of the times when we think about story and we think about card designs, we might not necessarily be thinking about the art, but it's something that comes into play a lot, is that we want to make sure that when we're designing cards and when we've got world building, that we are actually um, setting our art team up to actually create unique, interesting designs that uh, you know, will create different pieces of art as opposed to showing like, the same thing over and over or showing very similar poses or, or stuff like that. Uh, a, a fun little behind-the-scenes uh, fact for story fans is uh, originally Johan was meant to be like the uh, part of the uh, Ruby Kellen uh, triumvirate of like uh, little morons who are just doing <laughs> their best to uh, <laughs> get through the end of their little their personal adventure, but uh, we found through some early outlining that it, it, he was sort of cluttering the the story in ways that weren't uh, weren't helpful. Uh, I Plus, just thought uh, that was fun. You know, a third red character together uh, that's gonna <laughs> that's definitely recipe for disaster. Um, I think on the next slide we can see here also just a couple of more examples of cards from Johan's story. Um, the, uh, uh, the saga um, was actually one that we made very early on. Early on we actually created a number of sagas that represented kind of a lot of different stories. Um, and over time we just sort of felt like, oh, there were a little bit too many sagas. And the designs of all of them weren't the best and the most fun. Um, 
But uh, the, the Blue Red Saga was really one that uh, stuck all the way through to the end because we were just, we were in love with the way that it, it told the, the story of things getting out of hand and maybe you can get rid of it in time, maybe you can't. Um, this one especially stuck around because it was so fun to bargain away. I think that was really what ended up like keeping it in the file is that people loved to bargain this card away. Um, but here we can see some, some additional examples of cards that go into the blue-red archetype, right? These sort of spells matter type thing. We can see I love the little uh, aquatic alchemist. Um, the elemental designs are just so fun, and I think really gets to show off the creativity of the art team. I think we have one more slide as well that just shows off a couple final cards um, from this like blue-red spells matter archetype. That's awesome. And I think we did this with Ash Party Crasher as well. Is yes. that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the next one that we're going to talk about is Red White. So this is our Cinderella. Ash is our Cinderella. Um, and this is an example. So with Johan, we basically told the classic story with a little bit of a visual twist. Um, with Ash, we sort of did quite a bit of a different take on the Cinderella story. So in Ash's story, she's not just going to any old ball, but she is going to a ball that's held in an underground dwarf fortress. Um, and there she meets uh, Godric, who is this uh, prince who's also a dragon. And when she's at the ball, the ball gets attacked by, uh, by a bunch of uh, goblins and ogres. And she, you know, instead of just a dress, but this time she has a dress that's also battle armor. And she jumps into the fray and proves her worth. So it's got the basic idea of Cinderella in there, but it's quite a bit different. Um, and this is actually one example where um, it's kind of easy to pick out uh, a lot of the cards from this story because they actually ended up getting their own um, ability word, which is celebration. So any of the cards that you see in the set that have the celebration keyword, those are actually representing cards from the Cinderella story. Um, in this case, Ash's story is sort of the, the gameplay archetype is about having permanence entering the battlefield. That was definitely one that was inspired by the roles mechanic, um, a lot of uh, tokens that we were creating in the set. It was a, it was a fun sort of red-white aggressive strategy. Um, but here we can see you know, a moment where, uh, um, where Ash cuts in to the dance um, in order to, uh, I think, protect some party goers, or maybe Godric himself, I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, we can see that all of these sort of um, cards that represent humans and dwarves partying together, eating, and then sometimes also fighting with their food, these are all examples from this big party that gets crashed and that they have to defend themselves. That's awesome. And then I wanted to talk about one more because it's my favorite, which is um, Greta. <laughs> That's right. I, real quick, I think we have one more slide just showing off a couple more cards from the red-white archetype. And then after that, we have um, black-green. So we talked about Johan, blue-red, Sorcerer's Apprentice, pretty by the book. We talked about red-white, Ash, Cinderella, a little bit more of a twist. But finally, we have black-green, which is maybe one of the, the most different. So our black-green archetype is based on Hansel and Gretel. But this time, we're not, we didn't do so much of a twist on Hansel and Gretel. We kind of did a sequel. So in our version, uh, Greta, who is our Gretel, a, a little subtle, I don't know if you guys all caught that one, but <laughs> in our version of the story, uh, Greta's brother uh, was actually killed by the witch who initially captured them. So in this, kind of the follow-up to that original story, Greta is going after the witch who captured and killed her brother to get revenge. So here we see a battle-hardened Greta, who is charging in um, to the village of Sweet Tooth, which is where she's tracked down this witch to. And we also get to see, so here's like a Sweet Tooth witch, which is one of the coven of witches that lives in this town that is populated also by many candy monstrosities that you've seen throughout the set. The minstrosity and the sugar maw um, and the scream puff, of course. And so here we can see an example of like all of the, the 
devious and dastardly dessert monsters that live in the town of Sweet Tooth. And so this is really an example of us um, taking the basic premise of, all right, there's Hansel and Gretel, there is a witch who lives in a house of, you know, made out of gingerbread, um, and really taking it up to the extreme of like, all right, let's say, you know, let, maybe the story didn't turn out quite the same that you remember. How would this different story go? What's the next step? And also, again, what are some amazingly creative visuals that we can show off with the town of Sweet Tooth uh, and all of these monsters? Yeah. So, uh, if you look, I, I actually believe that we are working on trying to put out um, a little something online that helps to show players all ten of the different stories and the cards that go with them. So hopefully you guys will all be out. Yeah, if you, yeah, yeah. We're, I'm, I mean, fingers crossed, you know, I think we're going to be able to make that happen. And then everyone will be able to kind of look online and see the 10 different stories that we planned out. We definitely put a lot of time. I want to give a special shout out to Neil, who is the, um, uh, the person in charge of kind of concepting all of the cards for this set and making sure that, like, you know, oh, we need to make sure we have enough cards for each of the different stories that we can line them up. That's awesome. You mentioned the candy monsters. And the candy monsters in this set are just... They're so fun. It's like really easy to imagine them having their own little stories and adventures as you play with the cards. And in my opinion, it really helps the player tell their own story as they play the game. It's really the imagination of the player that retells these stories in infinite ways and combinations. And one of the most impressive parts about all of this flavor is that it can't exist just all on its own, right? It has to work mechanically. Chris, how was that process? I mean, yeah, so basically, yeah, to, to recap, we kind of got in a room, we wrote down a list of lining up the 10 different uh, archetypes with the possibilities for stories. And honestly, at the beginning, we were like, this looks okay, uh, let's see if they stick. And if we're being honest, they pretty much all stuck. <laughs> I think maybe only one or two of them changed, but for the most part, once we nailed them down, we realized that like, hey, these actually work out well and, you know, like, the reason why we picked the stories for the color combinations was because they meshed well with not only the flavor of those colors, but also the mechanical. So for example, the reason why we felt like the Hansel and Gretel story worked so well is because we knew it was going to be food themed. And so it was so easy to make all of the, the candy monsters and the witches because we knew that that was going to line up really well. Um, there were a couple that shifted over time. So the example I always give is that at the very beginning, we had uh, Snow White in red and white. And that was because we thought, okay, the white will be sort of the Snow White princessy side of things on the royal side. And then the red side will be the dwarves, which are sort of the, uh, another big aspect of, of obviously the original Snow White story. But sure. over time, as we shifted things around, we kind of felt that Cinderella was a better fit for red, white. And we shifted uh, Snow White into uh, white, black. And what that meant is that in our version of, of Snow White, we don't really have the dwarves. That's not our focus. Instead, the focus was much more on the evil queen and the poison apple and all of the sort of like, you know, dark magic, the scary parts of Snow White. And I think one of the things that we learned throughout this is that as long as we're communicating well between design and creative, there's a lot of flexibility in this kind of thing. And we're really able to shift our lens, shift our focus to focus on certain parts of the story over others and allow it to fit into whatever colors we kind of needed it to fit. Thank you so much, Chris. This was so fantastic to learn all about how story goes into actual gameplay, actual cards. Thank you so much. Let's give them a big round of applause. Th thanks for having me. All right. So we talked about where we've been and what it was like to set the stage of Wilds of Eldraine. We talked about our favorite characters like Kellen, Rowan, Ruby, among others. And we've seen how all these stories are interwoven in the story of gameplay, how players tell their own adventures. But let's take a look at the biggest of big pictures here. And Roy, I'm going to go back to you for just a moment. I want to talk about bigger magic story. 
What is it that Wilds of Eldraine is trying to accomplish? Well, uh, like I said uh, before, there's you know a lot of goals for the story. There's a lot of masters that it's uh, trying to serve. Uh, but I think if, if I had to pick one, you know, this is the beginning of a new arc uh, for Magic. And it's a really great time to get involved. It's a really great time to you know, start reading if uh, you've been curious about like, what Magic story is all about. Uh, uh, and so as part of that, did a lot of, a lot of setting up, a lot of introducing characters, themes that uh, are all going to uh, pay off pretty beautifully in the year to follow, I'll say. That wasn't cryptic at all. <laughs> um, so unfortunately, we are coming to a close with our panel. We are almost out of time. Roy, Kira, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on this very special adventure through Wilds of Eldraine. But I don't think we're done quite yet. Roy, you are talking about the future of <laughs> magic. And I think that means we should show just a preview, like just a small taste for what's to come in our next set. The Lost Caverns oh, of Ixalan, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do we want to see it? Do you want to see the card? Do you want to see a card yeah. from Lost Caverns of Ixalan? All right, we'll show you. <laughs> OK, so this is Kellen's card from The Lost Caverns of Ixalan. And I was wondering if, Chris, you would be willing to do us the honors to read it top down for our podcast listeners tuning in from home. I might need to scoot over here for a second. <laughs> I actually don't have a good view. I've got like a thing blocking me. Do you want, do you want to trade? Feel free to take center stage. Can I, can I just walk over here? Is <laughs> yeah. that good? Okay. All right. Kellen, daring traveler. Kellen costs one in a white. He's a legendary human fairy scout and he's got an adventure. Journey on. Let's read that first. It costs a green. It's a sorcery. You create X map tokens where X is one plus the number of opponents who control an artifact. What do map tokens do, I wonder? Hmm. Then, Kellen himself costs one in a white. Whenever Kellen, daring traveler, attacks, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature card with mana value three or less, put it into your hand. Otherwise, you may put it into your graveyard. Thank you, Chris. And in the art for our listeners at home, we can see Kellen dressed in these colorful robes of Ixalan. There's bright blues, there's white and gold with splashes of armor in there, and it really looks like he's ready for battle, standing atop maybe a temple of some sort. And yes, he is still wielding those dual light swords from Talion, which is very exciting. But I'm curious, Kira, What's it like seeing Kellen in the future on Ixalan? It's so touching. It's like watching my little boy grow up before my eyes. <laughs> he's going off to college. No, he's, he's going off to somebody's quince. That's what he's going off to. <laughs> and he, he's all dripped out for it. I think he's going to do very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to see where Kellen goes in, in the next adventure. And I'm so excited for our next season of the Magic Story podcast as well, journeying through the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. The set releases in November, but the fiction story is coming to you right around the corner in October. I have a feeling we're going to see Kellen once or twice in that story, too. If I could actually uh, also, uh, so uh, we mentioned, uh, we released already uh, the dates on which the story is going to be dropping, and uh, there was some speculation about um, what it meant that we were doing like one day of story release instead of uh, uh, one episode a day. I just want to clarify that uh, we're just going to we're going to be releasing all the stories at once. It doesn't mean there's any less story. In fact, there's actually more story this time around than Wild to Fell Train. So stay tuned. Yeah. Well, that's great news. 
All right, thank you so much to our special guests for today's panel, Roy, Kira, Chris. Thank you so much. It was such an honor getting to talk about this with you guys, all about Wilds of Eldraine. And of course, a special thanks to our wonderful audience here today for the first ever live podcast recording of the Magic Story Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. Our journey uh, on the podcast continues very soon into the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. We will see you next time, but until then, have, Have a magical, magical day. day.